So hi, today I am joined by Dr. Ashwini Natkarni, and uh, she is a psychiatrist and an instructor at the Brigham. And so Ashwini, do you want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me, Hardeep. I am a psychiatrist at Brigham Women's Hospital, an instructor at Harvard Medical School. And I have two leadership roles in my department. I'm the assistant medical director of Brigham Psychiatric Specialties Group, which is our outpatient division, and the associate vice chair for wellness. So I work really closely with our faculty affairs team on programs, resources, and supports to enhance professional well-being for everybody in our department. So one thing that came to mind just as you were giving your introduction, you know, in terms of wellness and your patients, like how does that kind of get combined at all in when you're seeing your patients as well as in your professional life in terms of the wellness of fellow physicians and faculty in your department and beyond? I mean, how do those two kind of cross over? Yeah, when I think about wellness, I think that there are so many dimensions to that word. I think in our culture, that word can conjure up references to celebrities who tout various vitamins or acupuncture or alternative health treatments as adjuncts to allopathic medicine. I think it also has this dimension that relates to our mental health. And finally, it has this dimension that relates to professional well-being, which is this area I focus on. So with my patients, all three of those really come together in evaluations and in treatment. Although I don't consider myself an expertise in alternative health, I feel very fortunate to be able to work with colleagues at the Brigham who are located at the Osher Center and often, you know, will suggest to my patients opportunities to consider alternative health treatments for depression or anxiety or any variety of psychiatric conditions. When it comes to mental health, I feel so privileged to be in this area of work, you know, Our mental health has never been, I think, a bigger part of the conversation since COVID started, because what we've seen with the pandemic is this massive epidemic of loneliness, right? And so more than ever, I think mental health is in demand and, you know, exploring that with patients is, I think, a really rewarding experience. Then there's this piece of occupational burnout. A lot of my patients bring that to care because work has been really stressful. We're seeing the impact of what we call the great resignation, right? I think it was said in 2021 that 4.1 million Americans resign from their jobs. I think that there is an article in the New York Times about that. And it makes sense, right? Nothing makes you reevaluate your values and decide to do something totally different with your life than being in lockdown for three to six straight months. And after that, seeing a complete shift in how we live our day-to-day lives. As far as how that dovetails with this work in my department, what we've realized about occupational burnout is that it has three different elements. And I'm referring here to a conceptualization of occupational burnout that comes from the research work of experts at Stanford. There is an element that has to do with operational efficiency and the systems that we're working in, right? The processes and the resources that we have available to provide the best patient care 
can be set up for success in her jobs. There's an element that has to do with individual resilience and our ability to get a good night's sleep, our mental health is a key piece of that. In our hospital, we have a rapid access faculty and trainee mental health program, as well as an employee mental health program, both of which are led by very talented colleagues that I work with and are focused on addressing and assessing psychiatric disorders in my colleagues and the staff in our hospital. And then lastly, there's this concept of culture of wellness that makes up that Stanford framework. That has to do with attitudes, the beliefs, and the language that we use in an organization that do promote that sense of professional fulfillment. So I think what's interesting in this space is how very much, you know, the experiences that we're having at work in the space of medicine are so confident with experiences that people are having out there in this country and, and which my patients bring to care, you know? There was very much the sense of, you know, a parallel experience with the pandemic. And I think that that was really brought into focus for me, particularly in the past few years. And so this sort of physician burnout, that's your area of expertise or where you're focusing on. And you've had a couple of papers published in JAMA recently. And so do you want to talk about those? Yeah. So that paper addresses this concept of cognitive load and gender disparities and cognitive load and something we call emotional labor. So cognitive load is the amount of working memory that's needed to attend to any cognitive tasks that require your attention at any one point in time. And emotional labor is the management of these emotional reactions and processes that can happen, whether they're taking place in the workplace or your home. And this paper came together because a colleague and I were discussing what things were like for us at home. Sometimes when I get home from work, I'll see, you know, the backpacks lying around and the cookie crumbs on the rug and, you know, my husband will cook dinner, but everything is lying around and in my head is, you know, the all of the workload that I have to complete that night on Epic, all the papers and projects that I'm working on. Also, you know, the summer camp plans, the vaccinations, and it's all there. It's all in my head. And I had this moment when I was talking to this colleague where we both said at the same time, wow, this is an issue, right? It's not just about the workload at home, but also what's going on inside your head that takes up so much tension that can really keep you from focusing, that you feel like is causing your working memory to diminish and hold it all in and manage it. And we began to explore this issue together uh, and research it. And we found some really interesting data out there. So this colleague of mine, her name is Dr. Jill Biswas, and she's a forensic psychiatrist and somebody I really enjoy working with in our department. But we were researching this and came across some fantastic data out there. A colleague of mine, Dr. Eve Rittenberg, who works in primary care, had researched this idea that women physicians receive a greater volume of staff messages in their inboxes in the electronic medical record. Those messages are not only coming from patients, but they're also coming from staff. And what they concluded in a paper that they published was that, you know, 
cultural factors may have to do with this, right? Sociopolitical cultural factors may have to do with this. There are gendered expectations of women physicians. Patient-centered care is something that is expected of all of us. And that's the idea that we spend the time necessary to care for our patients as a whole and address the psychosocial issues that may be impacting their medical health and care. What she noticed, though, is that, you know, patients may have gendered expectations like that, particularly of women. They may be sending more staff messages. And also those gendered expectations may be there in the workplace as well. So we talk about how some of that cognitive load is due to what's happening with the workload of the EMR. There's some interesting data out there, too, that shows that administrative workload is higher among them. And a lot of, you know, media attention on this. We think about, you know, who gets asked to do what in the workplace, right? And that concept of non-promotable work, it is the case that women can be asked to do that more often. So if you're asked to plan a party or you know, comfort a colleague. It's oftentimes women who are approached to do those jobs. But the challenge is if it's non-promotal work, it can really impact professional equity or gender. So we explore that at length in the article. And what were your findings really in, in that article? And what kind of suggestions do you have for, for women who are feeling this way, which I would imagine it's a lot of women who feel this way. I was reading, I had just started reading actually this book called Invisible Women, and I can't remember the last name of the author, but one of the things that she says is that when women go and, like, say, drop the kids off at an event or, or a sports fixture, whatever, that... A lot of times what they'll do is they'll sort of do add-on trips to like make it more efficient. And that's something that I noticed that I do. I hadn't ever actually sort of paid attention to it. Sort of like when I drop my daughter off at a crew practice on the way back, I'll just go, I'll go to the grocery store and I'll come back. And it was, it's sort of this thing where women will do that kind of add on an errand. Anticipate needs, make decisions. Take accountability for all of that extra work. I think that that's what you're describing. That's a great point. You know, one of the findings from this viewpoint was that we came across an article in JAMA that was published and examined data of how household chores were handled during COVID between women and physicians. And they found that women physicians were the ones likely to take on those household tasks and chores. And men were not, you know, and they were, they had to make sacrifices in their jobs to take on those tasks. So to account for that, those gender disparities, one of the framework shifts that we suggest is to not put that additional burden on women to account for it. To think about how we can come up with changes that our systems can make. If we have the data to validate that women are more likely to receive more staff messages or the electronic medical record, how can we come up with more administrative resources, right? How can we add to team-based care to shift that load from women physicians onto supporting clinicians? So that's one recommendation that we have. Another recommendation is to reinforce support for mentorship programs. 
mentorship is such a fantastic way to help support careers and advance women's careers, but also help them reconceptualize, you know, the workplace. Oftentimes when you come into a workplace, you feel a lot of pressure to say yes to things, you know? Somebody in authority figure says, can you do X? Can you do Y? Can you help Z? You think you're the first, they'll do that. How do you learn those skills in saying no in a professional way of setting boundaries or even asking for help? A lot of that is achieved through mentorship, which I think of as a way to get insider information from people who are familiar with the culture of an organization, who understand other individuals and teams and in a department and can help you navigate those complex dynamics and help you learn those skills. Leadership programs are also really useful for that. I had the privilege of participating in a number of fantastic leadership programs at the program, including the Women's Leadership Program. And they brought in speakers and experts there who talked about their personal experiences navigating these dynamics. And we all learn from the experiences of others. So some of those administrative resources, mentorship programs, it's not really critical. In our department, uh, we applied for funding from the Brigham Women's Physicians Organization. They have a fantastic program called Be Well, which offers support for a number of grassroots programs that originate in different departments at the Brigham. And we applied for funding to support the role of what we call an academic coordinator. And that is an individual, not a research assistant, really bright, fast-thinking individual who's hardworking, comes in, who's got a bachelor's and sometimes master's degree, who helps us do a lot of tasks related to academic advancement that are below licensure for physicians. Examples of that are things like maintaining one's NIH biosketch, working on formatting for HMSCBs, helping us format journal articles, journal articles, references. So, you know, those really great resources that we're trying to make available so that women in our department can focus on what really takes up their time, including work-life balance. Right. So you've hired someone who can, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I used to mow my lawn, right? And in, in total, it probably takes maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, but it was such a chore. But then since I started paying somebody else to come and do it, I, I never have to worry about doing that. It just gets done. And then, yeah. you know, it's sort of that kind of a person that you have where you can give the tasks that, and certainly with formatting things, they take time and, and it takes, you can't rush those things either, but it, it's frustrating to, be, to have to do it when there's no gain. I mean, yes, there are because it's in the correct format and whatever. But on the other hand, it's time that you could have spent elsewhere. And so what you have in place is someone to do that work for, you know, whoever uses it. And, the, and it frees up their time to, to do something more significant or whatever, more, let's say, valuable, enriching it's a way in which you free up time that is, can be used in a far more useful way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the program has been useful too in influencing culture because I think what we're trying hard to do is validate how much can take up an academician's time, right? In academic medicine, 
you see patients, you teach, you do research. And as time goes on, we have more and more and more that's required to make gains in each of those areas. As a result of that, it's really nice when someone acknowledges or people or department or an institution recognizes how much time that takes for people and says, hey, let's help you get some help and resources. You're describing too with your experience with mowing the lawn is that sense of psychological relief when you know that you're not accountability. It's like shift, you're not accountable, right? Like shifting a sense of accountability that makes a big difference to people, you know, when they just know that someone's going to take care of something and they don't have to worry about it. Right, right. I mean, we fill up our headspace with a lot and we have obligations to so many people in our lives, right? Whether it's the workplace or our communities, our children, our friends, our family. It's really nice to get a chance to just sit there and reflect and think and take a walk and have a little bit of time to yourself. I know what you mean in terms of feeling that that space and time is an indulgence. I think that that's because we're sensitized to believe that have to serving everybody else in our lives all the time, you know? But I would say when I get a chance to just stare at a wall and think, that for me is a, is a huge relief, you know? And I'm fortunate that my family are locally situated and they help us out on the weekends and they take my kids on a Saturday and I find myself sitting there thinking because someone's not interrupting me every couple of minutes asking for something, you know? Right. I mean, there's there's real power in having that time for boredom. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's what I have read, heard as well. And I also believe that, that sort of being bored is one of the things that you can do for yourself. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. sitting and watching a clock it is actually sounds counterproductive, but actually it's the opposite. It makes you more productive because you're not torn in 10 different ways. Yeah, and it makes sense too, even from a neurological standpoint, right? I know that there's studies out there that show that excessive multitasking does impact your working memory and it's demonstrated by SMRI studies, right? So we know for sure that if you can just try to sit there and focus on one thing, which to a certain extent, I wouldn't define that exactly as mindfulness, but it's kind of getting you there, right? Like the concept of mindfulness meditation, fixating your energy and your concentration on one thing and holding it there is really there. Right. I forget I'm talking to a psychiatrist. (laughs) You know, you know, all the neurological pathways and how the brain functions as well. So you can, you can offer that insight. So but as we were talking, you know, one of the things also is for, you know, women, I think that it's difficult for them to know that it's okay to take that time for themselves. And, mm-hmm. and how have you kind of addressed that within, you know, your program, within your de- department and mm-hmm. thinking about this, you know, specifically women physicians burnout? Yeah. So I have a colleague who is the chief of women's mental health, Dr. Lena Matol, and she and I during COVID 
set up a group for the mom psychiatrists and mom clinicians in the department at the time. And we would get together and talk about issues like this. I think that one thing that was really helpful about that experience was when we would discuss this very issue and kind of give each other permission to feel the way that we did and share tips and tricks and tools that we were using to clear time for ourselves, supports and resources that are available out there. There are elements of this that have to do with culture, and it feels like there are elements of this that have to do with systems, right? I think you're you're putting your finger on a cultural piece, which is that we all need to give ourselves permission to be able to do this. So that's a piece of it. And then there's the systems piece, which is looking for resources that help us shift accountability and free up our time. Trading tips and tools like that is incredibly useful. I think it also speaks to the power of peer support, which we don't often talk about, I believe, in medicine and is not, could could be further investigated in the area of mentorship literature. We have a tendency to feel that mentors are people who have lived longer than us, have more experience than us, and, you know, have a few white hairs on their head. I think I've learned a lot my peers in my department and my institution and collaborators across the institution and across actually Mass General Brigham. And that to me is, is incredibly useful. So peer support is something that we care about deeply in our department. And I'm, you know, working closely with collaborators in medicine, primary care, and across the Mass General Brigham to make more of those supports available. So what kind of suggestions would you give to other physicians, other faculty, staff who are dealing with these kinds of issues? What what would you be your, I don't know, top 10, top three, top five, mm-hmm. however, whatever number you want to give mm-hmm. recommendations for, for dealing with this kind of when you're getting close to burnout, when you know you're, you're on that edge or you're getting yeah. to that edge? First, I would say it's really important to recognize it in yourself, remain attuned to it. Look for those instances where you feel that your values are not as well aligned with the institution or the organization. So call it like it is, you know, to yourselves. Have that self-awareness. The second is ask for help. I think a lot of people think to themselves, this means it's time for me to leave the organization. I think that organizations and institutions are so much more mindful of this, have an awareness of this, and want to help. I think about that as being particularly key in my department, where there is such a desire to help everybody, to retain people, and to address anything that's going on. A lot of times people feel, do feel comfortable going to their chiefs, to their peers. Debriefing about the issue can be extraordinarily helpful because there is a great deal of sensitivity to this idea that clinical care has changed, that navigating issues with one's families, it's, it's much harder than it has been in the past. There's this realization that our culture has shifted in complex ways with COVID. So asking for help is key. And it can come through many different ways. If you feel like you're depressed or anxious, definitely get the support you need from either a therapist or psychiatrist or professional. If you feel like there's something going on at work, consider talking to a peer or your chief about it. There are a few different types of supports that 
I personally have found to be really helpful. First, I think professional coaching is really helpful. Although we talk about how we as a system need to take accountability for what's going out there, for what's going on out there with burnout, I think that's absolutely true. We need to change things with our culture. We need to try to address issues with operational efficiency and how we can set positions up as a nurse. But coaching is something that I find can enhance your own sense of self-awareness, can help you think about ways that you can improve relationships, can help you identify specific skills to work on. That gives you a sense of self-control and self-efficacy. So I found coaching to be really useful. There are some fantastic ways that we can work on our culture and promote a culture of well-being. I have some peers and mentors and leaders who have taught me to do this really well. In a meeting, when you can, amplify other women's voices. Somebody makes a point that's a little bit different, that reframes the conversation, that moves it in a different direction. Amplify their voice. Build on what they're saying. Another example of this is at a grand rounds in a, de- in a department. Someone makes a contribution, build on it, amplify it. That's incredibly validating within the culture. You see a peer, a colleague, a mentor, a leader who you think is really contributing to the culture and the institution, nominate them for an award. Nominating them for an award can help their career and validate them and give them a sense of professional fulfillment. So those are some easy tips, tricks, and tools. And then lastly, a lot of organizations offer opportunities to work on operational efficiency, clinical process improvement programs, quality improvement opportunities. These come up all the time. At Mass General Brigham, there are tremendous opportunities in that area. And after all, the idea of working on occupational burnout is just one more way to redesign healthcare t- systems to improve quality of care because taking care of our workers takes care of our patients. And also, this is something that I believe is like that people don't take enough time off, you know? <laughs> such a great practical point. Right? I mean, and I've, I've thought this for a long time that people take the, the, you know, they'll take a day off here or they'll take a Friday off and a Monday and make it a long weekend here and there, here and there. And it's sort of like, that doesn't give you the chance to like kind of stop working. You're always going to oh. be coming back to work. Yeah. So if you take, mm-hmm. you know, two weeks off, which I know is almost like a bad concept for many people in the United States, but that when you take that two weeks off, you get a chance to be away. And yes, there's, there's more work when you come back. But on the other hand, you've had that time to be away. And I, I'm a, also a big advocate of like not checking your email. I, I was going to say, that's one caveat. You have to not check your email. That's so true. That's such a great point. I've seen some people add signatures to their emails where they say things like, I'm not checking my email. I'll come back and check it later. This is not a time that I'm available. Or they say things like, you know, be part of the email revolution and don't respond to this three days. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, I, I always make note of interesting signatures that people have. I find that a really impactful and unique way to influence culture. Yeah. I, I mean, I absolutely don't check my email. 
while I'm away and now actually over the weekends as well, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and, and and also after a certain point in the evening and not, you know, first thing in the morning. It's sort of, mm-hmm. as, I mean, I know, and I know for my position that there's nothing really urgent that's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's okay to do that. And, that. and there are obviously other ways in which people can get hold of me. But, mm-hmm. but I think mm-hmm. that it's really, it's a really a good thing to stop you kind of getting that riled up feeling that if you get an email that does that, mm-hmm. when, you know, when you have looked at it in the evening and then now you have all night to like go over it. And over it. What am I going to say? How? What? You know? Do I need one versus? And then versus just saying, okay, well, I'll. I'm. If I don't check my email in the evening, then I, you know, you can just look at it in the morning, and then it's it's a whole other. Looking at at a problematic email in the morning means you have now have time to sort of look at it with fresh eyes. And I I don't mean that you're looking at it again, but you're looking at it somewhat in a different context, not with the whole day having been done mm-hmm. i completely agree with you i know exactly what you're talking about at the end of the day you have a weariness you're tired you're exhausted you want some rest taking a look at that email in the morning gives you an opportunity to feel vitalized and respond from that perspective that's a fantastic point i will say i think not looking at your email is an exposure. You know, that's what, that's the word we use in a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, which desensitizes people. You have to desensitize yourself, I think, with not checking your email. So first you go weekend without checking it and nothing bad happens. So you create a hierarchy here. Then you go the weekday, the, the evenings, as you pointed out. Then you go the whole week or two without checking it. After you've done that, you've probably done the whole desensitization. We probably need an e- a not checking your email CBT protocol out there. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't really thought of it. In mm-hmm. But the, yeah, it is. It's sort of like you take it small pieces at a time. Yeah, I think that shifted. I think the reason that's so necessary now is I really think things shifted in the workplace with COVID. A huge shift in the field of psychiatry, of course, as telehealth and in medicine in general that happened. I have a lot of colleagues in primary care, other medical specialties. We now see patients routinely by telehealth. And working by telehealth is such a privilege because, you know, hybrid model of care, you think of increased flexibility, autonomy. I absolutely love it. On the other hand, I realize I'm sitting at my computer all day. You know, there's not that time where you put your computer away, get in your car and you drive and you kind of decompress and you can get some space from the workplace, you know. So I think that this new paradigm of virtual care has shifted things where I suspect we're all in a lot more meetings and we are emailing each other a lot more because we're not sitting next to each other in offices and can't come out and just say, hey, Harthi, did you get me that paper? I have to email you now and make you respond to it, you know? Right. Yeah. There's the benefits and downsides of, of Zoom. It makes things far more convenient. And for sure, I, you know, as you were talking, I was going to ask you about how you found telehealth in terms of connecting with your patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it better or is it worse or 
just different? Yeah, I'd say it's different. There are some aspects of it that I really appreciate. So I can really listen to my patients and look at them. I can also continue typing while I'm doing it. So to a certain extent, because of the way that I'm positioned with the patient right in front of me, I can ease my documentation burden while I'm still pretty connected to the patient. I continue to be in office. I spend 50% of my clinical time in the office evaluating patients. I have noticed when I'm in the office evaluating people and, and talking to them and working with them, there is a special connection of being with somebody in person. There's no question. We all have a certain energy that we exude in person and that sense of connectivity, that warmth, there is something to that that one can have in person. But I, I do think that there's tremendous value of telehealth. Just the convenience, you know. Some of my some people I work with are coming from, you know, very far away. And it's really hard to make time for these appointments, right? It's not, you know, a huge surgery, it's 30 minute appointment. And to ask them to take a day off or to commute from two hours away, it's really hard on people. So the convenience, the flexibility, think that those are upsides. They're hard. Right. Yeah. And so you had just mentioned that you have been on some leadership courses. And can you talk a bit about that? You know, what kind of things you've learned, you know, and how, how they have, you know, influenced you? Going yeah. Through. So the way that I actually got involved in this work related to physician burnout is because of a leadership program. So at the Brigham, we have the Brigham Leadership Program, which is a program that is organized in collaboration with Harvard Business School. So it's really an amazing opportunity. You get to a number of sessions that are set up and led by professors at Harvard Business School. All of the participants are selected from the Brigham. So they're all physicians, administrators, nurses, physician assistants, all disciplines, all varieties of leaders across the hospital. What I came from that was first the networking experience of meeting so many people across the hospital, being able to have these meaningful conversations with them about their experiences. Second, in the actual program that I completed almost six years ago now, they gave you the chance to work with a group of individuals on a project. The project that I selected was on physician burnout. And the team that I work with came up with a survey that we could distribute to our respective departments to measure the feeling of being appreciated. So in a culture of wellness, one of the dimensions of that is perceived appreciation and the gratitude that people experience for working in an organization. So we sent this survey out to a number of different departments, radiology, surgery, medicine, and we assessed qualitative information that people gave us on what made them feel appreciated or unappreciated. We published that data in academic psychiatry and found that one of the most common reasons that people feel appreciated is when there is institutional recognition of what it takes to care for patients. 
And the follow-up to that is a set of resources that they're given to help them care for patients. So that was the number one reason people want to appreciate it. The BAP program also involved examining organizations and different dimensions of organizational efficiency and success through Harvard Business Review cases. So they look at various aspects of what it means to work in an organization and advance your organization. So some of this has to do with, you know, how you work in teams, how you innovate, how you run programs. You learn some hard skills related to that, and it's really based on these business review cases. So I thought that that was such a unique opportunity at the Brigham that I've had, and that's really where my interest in this work began. So what would what was your like one main takeaway that you sort of implemented as soon as you you were done the course or even one of one of the sessions you ended, you're like that, okay, I'm gonna do that from now on. I would probably say collaboration at a grassroots level. I think that that was a huge takeaway for me. That's called in the burnout literature, collaborative action planning. This idea that if you're going to implement a solution in an organization, got to collect feedback at the front lines. You can't just do something. You can't just take a problem and solve it in isolation in a vacuum. Got to collect data and feedback from people for whom that solution is made, right? And you've got to solicit their feedback on it. And you've got to iterate and take that feedback, come up with, you know, a prototype or a solution or a program, go back to that front lines, get more feedback, implement that feedback, go back to the front lines, you know, really talking to people, collaborating with people, implementing the feedback that's so critical. So that would be sort of going to your colleagues and saying, I'm having this kind of a problem. Are you having the same thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, and then saying, okay. It seems like out of the 20 of us, 15 of us are having the same problem. <laughs> and then would you take that to management or would you come up with your own solution and then take it to management? How would that, how would that work sort of in an operational sense? Yeah, I think that depends on the structure of the organization. Before I became the Associate Vice Chair for Wellness, I had a role being our department's wellness champion and directing efforts to enhance professional well-being. So I had the opportunity to really come up with these solutions and then find ways to implement them. Now I'm set up to collaborate with my colleagues and leaders in our faculty affairs team, and I have a new structure. I think it really depends on the organization. I could see how somebody could feel really empowered by going to their managerial leaders and saying, Hey, I'm interested in taking a look at this issue. Some of those managerial leaders might say, wow, fantastic. Maybe we can look for funding together. Maybe we can publish these results together. You know, looking at this within the framework of medical organizations. Or they might say, yeah, let's connect you with the chief wellness officer of this institution and have you, you know, collaborate with them and take that idea to them. That so might depend on the organization set up. Okay, so this is a devil's advocate question, but... What about if I said to you, it's all just propaganda? Mm -hmm. You know, all of this wellness stuff, it's just propaganda to make everybody think that they, they'll feel better. Well, we're just going to show you this is, we're going to do this and you, you, we know you're going to feel better. So I would say to that, that the last 10 years have had an enormous effect 
on the culture of medicine. I see that in the ways that I work with colleagues in, and I, and I notice the impact of the shift and the language that we're using. This idea that we no longer have this culture of self-sacrifice, you know, that's really positive one. You know, I really do. I think that that's a very positive one. Most institutions, not most, many institutions are now implementing mental health clinics for their clinicians. And, and that's a really discernible shift in the culture. You know, concretely, things are happening out there, right? People are taking this seriously. So some of these changes that institutions and organizations are making, they're not, they're not just dialogue. They're not just language. Putting resources and funding towards everything. And that tells me that this is more than just propaganda. You know, it's, it's impacting how we think about our careers and how we practice. Yeah. And one thing as you were talking was that the employee assistance programs are really beneficial and, and in, in many ways in terms of, you know, if you need to find a therapist or like you said, a professional mm -hmm. coach, like use your employee assistance program to, to find someone at least to get the, the ball rolling. It may not be a great fit straight away, but, but at least you've kind of got the ball rolling. Yeah. I think. Is, is a way to get it started. So as we kind of start to wrap up and get to the end of our time, there's two questions I always ask. One is, what's one professional skill you're working on and what's one personal skill you're working on? So a professional skill that I'm working on is mentoring. Mentorship is something that is really important to me. I have been fortunate to receive a lot of really fantastic mentorship and I want to pay that forward. I want to be able to understand when somebody is looking for advice versus just a kind ear, you know, to listen to them. I want to be able to advance others' careers. I want to be able to grow the great minds of medicine because those are the people who are going to be treating my kids and my grandkids, you know? So that matters to me a lot, this concept of posterity, you know, how do we contribute to posterity? We contributed to it in medicine through mentorship. So that's a skill I'd like to work on. In terms of a personal skill, I think I am one of those people who needs that email desensitization course. I definitely do. I think of myself as a very responsive individual and I love to be responsive and I definitely respond to emails as quickly as I can. I'm trying hard to slow down and I used to be someone who never checked emails on weekends, and now I do. And I think there's an opportunity for me to desensitize myself. So I really think you came from Jen here today. Or the I, I was going to say, okay, so physician, heal thyself. I think you gave your, yourself your own treatment plan there, right, as well? <laughs> okay, so as we sort of get to the end, do you have anything else you want to add that I didn't touch upon or you want people to know? Yeah, I think that sometimes when we talk about burnout and professional fulfillment, it's hard. It feels hard. You know, it feels like we have this fragmented healthcare system. We are all burdened with regulatory overload, have administrative issues. It feels like we have so many complications out there. 
one of the things, one of the reasons I feel so optimistic about this field and why I'm so dedicated to it is I do feel like there is such a recognition to shins and organizations of the importance of this. But also, there's a lot of opportunities for change that we can do. Just three small things. Yeah, just three small things we can all do to brighten someone's day, you know? And change is always slow, but it takes many, many, many different small, itty-bitty little changes to make, have a huge effect. And I think we're all capable of doing that. So. Don't give up if you're out there listening to this. Yeah, and I and what you said, it's it's like those little things that make a huge difference. They make a huge difference. Yeah, it's the concept of the long tail, you know, on the internet. On election day, everybody's looking up. You know, you've got five million people looking up, you know, who won the presidency. But every day, five people look up, you know, how to remove a warp from their toe. And the amount of actual traffic that accumulates over time on that teeny tiny search is huge, right? That's the concept of the long tail, and it's definitely something that I ascribe to. Yeah, I I have certainly noticed that, you know, there's little moments where somebody says something to me, and it can be anybody, a bus driver or whatever it is, you mm-hmm. know, they'll give you a big smile or whatever it is. And it, it just kind of lifts you. It lifts you up. I totally yeah. hear you. I totally agree with you. Or a conversation like you're having with your colleagues and you're discussing, you know, different ways to learn about something. And somebody is vulnerable for a moment and says, oh, I struggled with that. Are you having an issue with that? And it shifts the tone in the conversation where things are much more collegial and safe, you know? We have all some control over those things. Yeah, I'm I'm a big advocate of of doing those kind of things, and certainly when somebody does something that has helped me, I try to you want to pay it forward, pay it forward, but also acknowledge the extent to which they've helped me. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like that specific feedback. Uh-huh. And you give that uh-huh. really specific feedback. I, I remember being at some training where, you know, if you think back to the time somebody has given you feedback, when it's uh-huh. really made a difference, and what is it about that feedback that made a difference? And it's uh-huh. the specificity of it. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. I have heard really specific timely feedback can make people feel very appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Those are the kind of ones when... Especially when you get it by email, that and I, and I highly advocate people doing this is to copy and paste that into a document and label it as saying nice things people have said to me, and then you the right idea, and then you go back and look at it on the days when you have the people who have said not nice things to you. So, mm-hmm. so I I advocate take to, to, to doing that. Have that document where mm-hmm. you can add to it and go back and look at it. Yeah. I'm going to pass that on. Can I pass it on? Of course. Of course. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everyone needs that document. Yeah. I think you're right. When you need to remind yourself that you're a good person. (laughs) Just as you are. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Um, It was so nice to be here today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This conversation with you. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It was good. Yeah. Thank you so much for again volunteering being brave enough to do this. Um, yeah. 
Pleasure.